John chapter 10, one more time. I want to conclude that. I feel like the Lord has added this little bit to it. And I want to share once again on the subject of why. The question, why? Part three. Jesus said, the thief cometh not, but for to steal, and to kill, and to destroy. Jesus said, I am come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Emphasizing one more time that it is the work of the devil to rob, to take away, nullify, defeat, make forlorn, depressed, cast down, make you give up and quit, kill, steal, and destroy, whatever method he can employ, whatever you will tolerate, whatever you will put up with that he brings into your life, he'll do it. If you give him room, as Paul said, to give place to the devil, if you willingly give him place or if you ignorantly give him place, he takes it. And he is disrupting, especially in the church and Christians' lives. A lot of people's lives are disrupted and destroyed and probably, for the most part, they're having a meaningless experience with the Lord. Something is left out of their life. They can't figure it out. Hopefully they try this and try that. But it all comes down to something I said the last two weeks, basically this. One, we are equipped for warfare. That is, the Bible has given us many indications of what belongs to us that we fight with. And the weapons of our warfare are designed to overcome our enemy. But we're a very tolerant people. In the church, I'm talking about church folks. We tolerate a whole lot of what the devil brings into our life and don't like to admit it, but quite often we're not fighting it to overcome it. We just sort of live with it. And we listen to sermons, and yet our lives are not advancing. We're not doing really better. Because what we have been given to fight all of this gloom and doom and yucky stuff in our life with, we're not fighting. We're not fighting. See, we just don't fight. The reason we're not doing better, or a whole lot of people that aren't doing as well as they could, is because they don't fight. It's not a new preacher. It's not a new building. It's not a change of pace. It's not a... A vacation, it's fighting. It's fighting the good fight of faith. That's the one thing the devil fears from you. So thirdly, his method of attack is the word of God. To misinterpret it to you. To cause you to misread it or misunderstand it or to bring error in your life. Or to make you deceived by some popular figure, educated, well-to-do, accomplished, book-writing, national figure, whatever, or just a local somebody that you love to hear him preach. If the information you're getting is not right, or if it's watered down, or if they leave things out so you won't be hurt by it or, you know, aggravated by it, if you leave out enough stuff, you're not going to fight the good fight of faith. A lot of people don't fight, and because they don't fight, they lose. Let me tell you another reason. The reason we don't fight is because we have no faith. Ah, everybody says, but we do have faith. We talk about faith all the time. Faith is more than a word. The Bible says fight the good fight of faith. Remember that? The Bible says to resist the devil by faith. 1 Peter 5, verse 8 and 9. Whom resists steadfast in the faith. The one thing the devil fears and knows will overcome him and overwhelm him and defeat him is faith in God. Faith is nothing more than a choice you make to take God at his word. But if his word is maligned, if you've been talked out of it, if somebody's told you it's not all that big a deal, you know, some of these people study too much, and you're just a nice, kind person that goes to church, but you don't gather in that word, you don't have a weapon. If you don't have the word, you can't have faith. Again, faith is more than just a word. It's more than part of somebody's creed. It's an easy word to say. It's not hard to define. Faith is always an act. It is taking God at his word and living like it's true. And I'm trying to be nice. If we're not doing that, 
we will learn to submit to whatever the devil's doing and just say, well, you know, after all and after all. And we start making excuses because we hear that so much. We become defeated. As I said last time, when this begins to happen, when you're not using your faith in your warfare, you become unsettled and uncertain about the promises of God. Well, how do you know that'll work? Who did it work for? It didn't work for them. Have you ever seen a miracle? Well, how do you know they're for today then? Well, well, I know somebody that believed that way and now they're buried. And then how do you know it won't happen to you? And so people become unsettled about the promises of God. They know God said things in the Bible. They're just not sure that it'll work for them. And there are multitudes of preachers that will tell you, well, now look, 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 look. Before you get all advanced in all of this stuff, it's obvious that God can do all of this. But, you know, you can't expect him to do it because you ask. I mean, look at all the people it didn't work for. So you arm yourself with that kind of information, misinformation. And then the question comes. He throws the question at your mind because this is how you lose your faith. How do you know that'll work for you? Who said you're good enough for that? I mean, you haven't been saved for six months. How do you know that'll work for you? Well, I mean, show me one example where that's ever worked. Yeah, it worked back in the days of the Bible, but Jesus was here then. But, you know, that doesn't work like that today. Times have changed. The Bible's changed. Cultures change. And so there you are in a church having a great need for something spiritual in your life, but unsure of whether or not you can obtain it, which means there's a lack of faith in appropriating those promises. You don't know that you can. It's a faith problem. It's not a knowledge problem. We know that God has said things. We're just not sure that he'll do it. I said, secondly, that we worry and we give in to fear when we're uncertain. Just worry. The temperature goes up. Another month without enough money to do whatever. What's going to happen next? You know, this trend in the world about this, you're going to lose your house, and then what are you going to do? And instead of taking all of those questions and all those statements to God, and taking a stand and saying, now, Lord, here's what the devil says. Here's what's going on. But now you've said in your word, and I'm going to take you at your word. People don't do that today. You could. We can. We're told we can. What things soever you desire. When you pray, believe you got it. And yet people are just not sure it'll work for them. Consequently, they don't fight. And there truly is, listen to me, all of you here tonight, there truly is a resignation to what you're going through that it's not going to get any better. Been like this for how many years? It's, it ain't going to get any better. And there's no fight. It's just a resignation. And yet, if you look carefully at what's going on in your life, it's not God making us like that. It's not God that overwhelms us. It's the devil. And yet, even when you teach people that, they still don't fight. It's lack of fighting that causes you to give up your praise and your worship. When you worship God because you're, it's a song we used to say, I get so thrilled with Jesus every moment of the day. When you truly become enamored with who Jesus is, praise is easy. And when the devil says, well, look at all the bad stuff in your life, he said, but I can cast it over on the Lord. He said, he cares for me. Praise him for that. That's when you're believing but when you start folding your arms and you sit there and you keep sitting there and you keep on sitting there, next thing you know, you're starting to talk about it. And you start murmuring a little bit. Then you start complaining a little bit. Then you start to get critical. It's because you're not using your faith. I want you all to say amen to that because it is the truth. People become insecure. They look for their help in the world. They're thinking maybe if they can attach to something in the world financial, they'll have security in their older life. If they can get some kind of a health policy that will cover all of their coming health problems, they think like that. They're trained to think like that. If they get enough health insurance and they can afford enough to pay for that, then when they get old, it all happens and it'll be paid for. Like that commercial on the radio one time before I could get it off. He said, well, you just go to the hospital and you let us worry about it. Oh, God. But that is such a normal, overwhelming majority of the mindset in America and in the church that to say it any differently, people think you're in some cult. When you say, we don't have to have that. That doesn't have to be the way it is in our life. 
You don't have to grow old and break down. It's just not required. There's nowhere in the Bible says, when thou art old, thou shalt be skinny. The Bible says in your old age, you'll be fat and flourishing. At least flourishing. <laughs> I like the flourishing part real well. If you're without faith long enough, if you fail to fight the good fight of faith, if you're unwilling to fight, you begin to take on a characteristic in your life, a character. Something begins to be developed on the inside of you where you learn to live with whatever. Now, you would never say it like that because that's not the way Christians are supposed to talk. But some people's lives speak louder than what they say. I'm not saying you. I'm just saying in Christianity. If it applies to you or me, so be it. But when you learn to live with whatever and this character of whatever, I don't know, whatever, is developed on the inside of you, you basically, without your faith, are you going to become a fruitless person. A fruitless person. Now, we don't talk enough about fruit bearing. One of the serious things that Jesus spoke of, serious because the consequences of not having it, being fruitless is not a real good thing. The New Testament has a lot to say about bearing fruit. And when we're fruitless, we're not in a good place. Let me read something for you, Matthew 13, 23. But he that receives seed in the good soil, into the good ground, is he that heareth the word and understandeth it, which also what? Beareth fruit and bringeth forth. Do you see those words, and bringeth forth? Let me say it again, because I want you to understand this. He that hears the word and understands it. Now, that means that when you hear it, you may not understand it as you hear it, but you have a desire to know what that means. That's where faith will come. Faith is not based on uncertainty. Faith is based on certainty. When you're uncertain, you don't know. When you're certain, I'm sure. I know in whom I have believed, for example. So when the word comes and you get a hold of it and you deal with it and you begin to understand it to where your heart goes, oh, I see it. Praise the Lord. I got it. Here's what it says will happen as a result, which also beareth fruit and bringeth forth some hundredfold, some so forth. Bringing forth is talking about something that has been given to you on the inside of you is brought up. You know what that is? It's Christ. Christ is a living word. He's a seed. When the word is planted in your heart, it's a seed planted in your heart. As it grows, it begins to express itself. We call that bearing fruit. Where once the fruit was not good, it becomes a new kind of fruit. You yield to this life on the inside of you and you begin to be a fruit bearer. Now, if the fruit in your life is not good, but let's call it evil, it's because we're not fighting. It's because we're not doing what we ought to be doing with it. God's word is designed, when you plant it in the ground, when a seed falls into the ground and dies, what does it do? It beareth much fruit. John 12 talks about that seed. It beareth much fruit. And when it bears fruit, as he says here, it brings forth. In other words, you don't stay as you were. You don't bring forth once in your life and now you're brought forth. It's a continual thing. Because God gives you more than one thing to listen to. And you listen to the things that he says, and when you begin to grasp it, it has an internal effect upon you. You yield to it. Whatever's in the way, you get it out of the way. And it begins to bring forth. And you begin to grow from glory to glory to glory. Things begin to change in your life. And this is the way it works. In fact, if you look back in Matthew 7, these old familiar words here, verse 16 and verse 17. You shall know them by their fruits. Shall know who? Well, whoever says he's a Christian. Is that still true today? You shall know them by their fruits. He's talking here about false prophets, but it's true this other way. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? No. Even so, every good tree brings forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree brings forth evil fruit. Now, verse 20 says, you shall know them by their fruits. You shall know them by their fruits. Let me ask you a question. Is there any evil fruit in your life? 
Has there ever been any evil fruit in your life? Is there any residue of it tonight? Are there things in your life that you know should not be there but are there? Are there situations in your life that are but should not be? That's what we know. If a person never worships, never praises, except maybe every now and then so they don't appear as to be the only one that's not, they'll raise their hands and give it a little something. Is that fruit? You're bearing fruit. There's an indicator in your life that is showing that something in here is not the way it should be. Now, why aren't you fighting that? Why aren't you doing something about that so that it is the way it should be? Why do you accept stuff like that and just go on as though it's okay to be like this? Because it's not okay to be like that. Should not Christians be joyful people? Then let me ask you something. Why are we not joyful? Has something suppressed our joy? Of course it has. Then why do we put up with it? When we hear the word about it, why don't we do something about our lack of what God wants? Why do we yield to what we know? I know I'm not living and doing and acting and putting my hand the way I'm supposed to, but I do it anyway. I don't tell me it doesn't happen. I'm here every week, many weeks, nearly 3,000 times I've been here. So I know what I'm talking about. Sometimes it never changes. The word could be exciting. The word could be dull. The word could be fresh. It could be old. It could come with exuberance. It could come with And some people you'd never know, never change. Why? That's the question. That's the title on the front of this message, if you're listening to it. Why? Why, if we know that the fruit that we're expressing is not good, if it's not good, it must be evil. Now, we don't want to admit that either because that's bad, but it is bad. And if the fruit we're expressing is not the kind of fruit that glorifies God, where did it come from? How did it get there? And why don't we fight it? Or maybe we're just learning, as I said at the beginning, we're just learning to tolerate stuff like that. And we just assume because the devil is a master deceiver that we can't do much about it. So we just sort of live with it and let it go. You know what Jesus said in John chapter 15 about bearing fruit? Let me read that. In verse 4 and 5, he said these words, Abide in me and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can you, except you abide in me. That's a relationship. I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. That's the coming forth of Jesus. For without me, you can do nothing. Now, here's the consequences of our unwillingness to fight against what is preventing us from being fruit bearers in verse 8. Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, so shall you be my disciples. Now again, he said, verse 6, if a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered, and men gather them and cast them into the fire and they're burned. What good is a branch on any tree if it never bears fruit. It's good for nothing, isn't it? It's just a stick on the side of a tree. Oh, it's on the tree, but it's no good. Eventually it'll wither because it has death and not life. And he said, he likens that to us. He said, if a man doesn't abide in me, he won't bear fruit. If he doesn't bear fruit in verse 6, he'll be cast off and thrown into the fire. Those are severe and dire consequences to be sure. So maybe we need to go from there to Hebrews 5. You don't have to turn to this, but remember in Hebrews 5, Paul said, if he wrote Hebrews, he said, I have a lot of things to say to you about something that God showed me, but I can't really teach on it because you won't listen. Now, I would ask the question, you know, if you're dull of hearing, you said you've become dull of hearing. So I would ask the question before you, well, how'd you get that way? You used to listen. You once used to gather things in from the Lord. Why is it that now you don't listen? Oh, well, it's this and it's that and it's that. Why don't we just say for exactly what it's the devil and you've yielded to it? 
Because the devil couldn't make you dull unless you cooperated with him. It takes two to be dull. The devil can't make you do anything. He cannot just overrule you because he wants to. He has to give you a reason to cooperate with him. And he has ways he talks to your mind and tells you that, well, you know, not tonight. You're not, you know, you're not into it tonight. And after all, and, you know, you've been to church all your life. Come on, man. I mean, take it easy. And you do become dull. And the preacher preaches, and he knows you're not getting it. He doesn't see any evidence of it. So he says it again, and it, and it seems like people are just getting tired of hearing it. Same old, same old. And yet, what good is preaching a new sermon every week if you're not listening to the one you heard last week? Easy, because we're not in a contest here to see how many different titles we can preach on. The whole purpose of being here is to learn. And learning, sometimes, ministerially speaking, is a labor. Because there are people who don't want to listen, and yet you want to teach. Now, why do you get that way? If it applies to you, why do people get that way? Why would you realize, sitting in a place that you have become dull of hearing, that I used to be more, I used to be, and we used to, but you know, I'm not anymore, and this doesn't work for me. Why? What has the devil done to make you give up? Can't you fight him? Can't you resist the devil? Is he able to be whooped or overcome? Then why don't we do that? That's the title of the message again, is why. Well, maybe it's the residue of your past. You know, I grew up, had a bad background. I'm not going to go into mine because mine was different than yours, but I wasn't a very nice person. My mother thought it was. But spiritually, it was very corrupt, very corrupt. And sometimes that carries over into this life, and we make excuses by saying, well, you know, I grew up with this problem, and it's just hard to get over it. So you don't tolerate it. Turn to 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6, and then after that, Galatians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians 6, and look at these 10 things here that followed people in their past. Verse 9. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Who is unrighteous? Think of righteousness like this. Righteousness is right with. And the only thing that's right to be right with is God. Now what if you're not right with God? Then you're wrong with God. It'd be wrongness. We just use a prefix un. Remember 1 John 3, 7, it said this, be not deceived. He that doeth righteousness is righteous. So doing what is right is a choice. It's a choice. It's a choice that you have to make. You may make excuses why you don't make good choices. And let me tell you all something. Because I love you. Not worshiping God's bad choice. Not keeping your hands on that plow and overcoming some of these little dumb things in your life is a bad choice. But it's your choice. Living with stuff in your life that you should overcome is a bad choice. I mean, you're letting things happen that's bad. The fruit that's born is evil because it doesn't glorify God, and God has to judge it. And you're giving God an occasion and a reason to judge you. That's why, because God has taken you up and made you his own, if you're elect, he said he chastises everybody that he loves. Didn't he say that? If he loves you, he's not going to leave you alone. But he chastises you, and he says, and if you're without chastisement, you're illegitimate. Now, no chastening for the present seems to be joyous, but grievous. Oh, this church and this message, oh, God. It seems to be grievous right now. Nevertheless, afterward, when you get into this thing and you start applying this truth, he said afterwards, it yields a peaceable fruit of righteousness to those that are exercised thereby. Doing the right thing brings peace because it brings God. Overcoming the wrong thing brings peace because it's an effort. You're going to be tested and tried to see if you will. But back to this verse again in verse... Nine, the unrighteousness will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
and be not deceived. Don't let anybody tell you anything less than this because the other five things he mentions throughout the rest of this verse all have to do with uncleanness, sexual impurity of all sorts, fornicators, and the world's full of it, the TV is full of it, the mindset and the thinking of America's youth and their older folks too is full of it. Lust is rampant. It's laughed at. It's a joke. It's funny. Everybody talks about it. Everything has to have this nasty innuendo to it because this is the last days. Why wouldn't the devil do that? Because he corrupts people this way. This is the way he gains a hold in your life and that hold he gets suppresses everything else you ought to do and you just give in because you feel guilty and you don't know how to fight guilt or you don't fight guilt. Well, I'm just no good. I did it again. I whew, tell you the truth and you just cave in. Fornication. Look at the rest of them. Idolaters. Worshiping something and having affection for something besides God. Adulterers nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind. Talks about homosexuality here. He said, this is what's going to happen, and this is what, well, he goes on to say, we keep you out of heaven. Verse 10, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards. Drunkards start with just a little drink every day, a little something on the way home, a six-pack for the weekend, a cold beer tonight before I go to, it just starts like that. It's like marijuana begins a journey to coke and then to whatever. It's just the devil putting a little innocent thought, hey, just get you a nip. How many people have a bottle under the sink or up in the cabinet? It's just a little something. Well, a little bit leads to a lot. Nor revilers. This is the nasty talk, the smack mouth, the vulgar innuendo talk today. Revelers, those who revel nor extortioners who threaten people. Notice it said, none of these shall inherit the kingdom of God. Now, verse 11, and such were. You see the word were? Such were some of you. But you have been washed and you have been cleansed and you've been justified in the name of the Lord. This should not, therefore, remain in your life. You've been justified from this. Don't allow it back. Have you been delivered from thievery? Then don't steal no more. How about other things? Well, whatever used to control you, you've been delivered from it. Look at Galatians 5. You have been delivered. Verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Now notice again. Adultery, fornication, Uncleanness, lasciviousness, just put nasty. Idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, strife, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such the like. As I've told you before, I'll tell you again, these will not make it into heaven. Let me ask you a question. If any of these things, to some degree, mild or great, are in your life, why do you let them remain? Don't you know that you can fight this? Don't you know that the devil has no right to bring this on you or to come back in your life with this stuff? And don't you know that if you yield to him a little bit that he brings guilt into your life telling you now, you're no good anymore, you've gone back. You can't be saved, now you're going to hell. Because he takes away forgiveness and God does forgive, thank God for that. But if you can see, if you can discern, if you can see all these things going on, are you willing to fight and overcome it? You should not be dull. You should not be a dismal Christian. You may not be Prosperous, you may not be as well as you're going to be yet, and you may be struggling with some financial things in your life, but you should never be a dull person because Jesus Christ has set you free. Amen. Now, if the devil can, he'll bring bondage back into your life by talking to your ear because, you see, that's the way he does. He deceived Eve by his subtlety. 
Paul said, I fear lest your minds be corrupted from the purity of devotion to Christ. And you begin to think all these other things and you begin to be defeated and the next thing you know, you're in trouble. What about in the church addictions? How about addictions in the church? Is there such a possibility that people who have been born again, confess they're born again, go to church every week, is it possible that they could struggle with addictions? How about drug addiction? Maybe not pot, maybe not those kind of street drugs. What about this fear of not having drugs from the drugstore? You hear a message on faith about overcoming and trusting God, and next thing you know, you realize that you couldn't let go of that. Just like some people couldn't turn off a TV set. They couldn't if they tried. Worse today, you couldn't turn off a computer. You couldn't do it. What a waste of money. Well, it would be a waste of money, wouldn't it? See, there are people that are addicted. You could be addicted to coffee. I remember twice in my life, I got convicted about being addicted to coffee because I drank two cups a day. Then I learned about a preacher friend of mine in uh, another part of the country who drank two pots a day. <laughs> two pots of coffee a day. I mean, I drank two. The last one doesn't always get finished, but two pots? Can you imagine the last part of the last pot, the last cup out of the last pot? How, whew, that's addiction. See, that's a control. You say, well, it's just coffee. You know what? Anything that gains a mastery over your life in one area can affect you spiritually in another area. Now, we never make that connection. Therefore, we seldom get delivered. But things that control you, you need to fight against it. A couple of times, I just quit. I said, I'm not going to drink coffee anymore, at least for a while. Just quit. Let go of it. You know, I'd be in some places where coffee was awful good. I could smell it. Uh, I just say no. Just say absolutely not. No. I remember one time about sweets. I like sweets, but there were times I thought I can't function well in the evenings without something sweet to eat. I will not be controlled by that, so I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to be addicted to sweets where I have to have it and the thing controls me. Anything. And yet, people give in to that so easy, and it does affect other areas of their life. I don't know specifically what or how, but it, it affects other areas of their life. Take uncleanness. Uncleanness. You're living in an age of uncleanness. Pornography, for example. Pornography could be described as uncleanness. Looking at pictures that excite your passions of your baser nature making you think thoughts that God will judge, and they're sinful thoughts. And yet your body feels things, and the mastery of your body by feelings often overrules the condition of your heart that says, suppress it. And you sit there and you watch it anyway. You give in to it. And it begins to affect you. There are people who are addicted to pornography and all disgusting forms of it from child pornography on, there's some people that are really, really affected by this. They're all weak. Not a single one of them in any form are strong because it, all it takes is a naked picture of somebody and they're affected by it. They're weakened by it. They can't avoid it. They can't give it up. It's an addiction. Now, I cannot imagine somebody with that kind of an addiction worshiping God in spirit and truth. I know a preacher of a big church out west. Big church. Bigger than this one. <laughs> By many, how many times? He was caught. He had him a homosexual friend up in Denver, and he would go up there ever so often, and this homosexual fellow up in Denver heard this preacher on the radio one day, didn't know he was a preacher, and heard him talk, and he said, wait a minute, I know that voice and heard him talking against homosexuality, then he blew the horn on him, and I'm glad he did. I hope they all get caught. I hope they all get caught. But man gets involved with enticing things, and his body 
overrules his feelings. That's why kids get in trouble today. They're just so sure that they've got to do this or I just can't stop myself. They're weak. There's no faith anywhere. I mean, I don't care what you've been taught. I don't care how well you've been taught, how long you've been in a place where you've been taught. When the devil rules over you, you're a weak person. There's no strength in your life. The Bible says be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. And when you give that away because you want what the devil brings, you're going down the tube. You're going to be defeated. What about stealing? Can there be an addiction to stealing? Just taking things? When's the last time you heard of a movie star caught shoplifting? Remember that a couple years ago? A well-known lady movie star? And she was caught in a store shoplifting two or $300 items. You think, well, the much money as she got, why would she have to steal? It's an addiction. It's doing something just to know that you can do it and you did it. And it ain't the money. It's a spirit. It's a spirit behind pornography. There's a spirit behind drug addictions. Anything that masters you besides God becomes an addiction and it'll put you in bondage. Church people don't really like to hear all this, but it's true. We are easily enticed by a lot of things. I'm asking the question to whatever it is and whoever. Why? You've got a Bible here full of victory. You've got weapons that you can fight with. You've got 24 hours a day to apply this. You get two days a week to come and be strengthened or to reapply yourself. Why would you give in to all this other stuff? Why would you become a dull, listless, fruitless person? There's a real severe danger behind all of that. But there's people who just steal. We've had people steal from here in our church. Steal money that was given for the sake of helping the needy. That's a low-grade thief. That's a low-level, low-bred thief that would take money that people give from the goodness of their heart to help those that need some help and to steal it. But there's an assignment that God makes to that person about the end of their life, which is tragic and sad, but it happens. But you get to the place where you're just addicted to stealing, and you do. What about lying? Why would you lie? Why do you have to lie? You don't have to lie. But people that steal will lie. People that are caught in pornography lie. Have you noticed everybody that's in sin lies? They just lie. Oh, I didn't do that, and you did it. You act like you didn't, but you did it. And on the inside, there's dirt and filth and uncleanness working on you. And when you get out of the atmosphere, praise the Lord, hallelujah, like that preacher was, your life goes down into the dirt pile. And you've got this guilt and this thing hanging over you. You know you're going to be judged, and you don't do a single thing about it. No repentance no sorrow, no anguish of soul to get out from under this thing. You just live with it. And even when you get caught, you justify it. That's death. I ask the question, why? Why would you let that happen? Why does that have to be? All of this stuff glorifies the devil. All of this is fruit born under the work of the devil. This is what he does, and you can see it. You can see it in indifference. You can see it in sadness. You can see it in gloom. You can hear it in what people say, all the things they talk about, their fears and their anxieties about things. When you give in to all of these little things the devil is doing, you open yourself up to depression and to joylessness and to grief and sorrow. We see things like this a lot. These are fruit robbers, things that rob us, and we don't do anything about it. Let me give you an example. Take marriage. The union between a man and a woman. I have had a number of people, and many of you in my office, to make a few comments, examine a few things in your life before you get married. And I have found that no matter what you warn most of these love bugs about, because they're all just caught up in the coming day of marriage, and I have, on occasion, seriously warned, I said, you know, 
there's a real adjustment that you're going to have to make in your marriage. That you're going to discover things about your mate, man or woman, that you didn't know. And it could cause a lot of trouble. And if you can discover anything now, we can deal with it now. But if you can't now, one thing you must do when you're married, you must be able to talk. Because if the devil can shut your mouth in dealing with things, then here will come the depression and the gloom and the indifference and the spiritual climate just begins to... But a lot of young people have come in. We've talked about some things. We've talked about the difficulty of the marriage adjustment. You're marrying a boy with a family that's different than the one you grew up with. You're marrying a girl whose family is different than the one you grew up with. Her mother and dad are going to have an effect upon her while she's married to you. Y'all believe that? Especially it could be a mother on her side that's very motherly, and she wants to mother you too, brother. Now, she doesn't know she shouldn't be doing this, but she's just trying to be a good mother. She knows a lot more than you do. She's more gifted in what to do than you are. And she knows what you ought to hear because she's a mother. Now, you didn't know her mother's like that. when you, you didn't know his mother was like that. You know, when you're young, you don't listen to all this kind of talk. We just love each other. We just go love each other. Well, and I can only promise you this, that somewhere in all of this, you loosen your grip a little bit. And some point in your marriage, you'll actually draw back and look at her, and you'll look at him. And sometimes you want to go, hmm. And sometimes she'll go, hmm. Because things aren't exactly the way I thought they were going to be. Man, when he was courting me, he smelled good, and he always was polite. He opened the door, and he was all of that. What happened to that? Well, he was doing his best to gain your affections, and he did. And, well, when he married you, you were always, you know, just made up and pretty all the time. And now, you know, he comes home, and <laughs> who are you? But back to what I want to say tonight about the question why in marriage adjustment. If two people, if a young couple... When there is a problem that the devil throws between them, if you cannot talk about it, then you just tolerate it. And eventually you get used to it and you settle into its dominance in some part of your life. It never gets dealt with and it affects your attitude towards her. It affects her attitudes towards him. If you marry a, an only child, for example, sometimes it's isn't true. And I know you were an only child. I'm not talking about you or in tape land. But if you marry, sometimes you marry an only child, you don't know they have problems until later on, and then she pouts a lot. Well, my mother wouldn't, well, wait a minute, I ain't your mother. Well, my mother would tell me, well, I didn't marry your mother. I married you. Where's the girl I married? So you begin to deal with some of these things, or let's face it, some of you have been married for quite a while now. And you've allowed the wife to do without sharing how you feel about it. You've allowed your husband. And you both have your own way of doing things. You're actually going your own ways. You live in the same house. You even sleep together. But neither one of you are happy. Neither one of you are joyful with each other. You've just gotten used to living together. You just tolerate things. And you let things go. I'm saying this. Why? Doesn't the Bible give some indications of what a woman ought to do? Does the Bible say anything about the way a wife should treat her husband? Does the Bible say anything about the way a man should treat his wife? Is there anything? Okay, then, why doesn't it work? Why doesn't it work? Is it because we can't? We can. We don't fight anymore. Just give in. Uh, then you hear him talking about her as, you know, she's the old lady. I don't hear it much anymore, thank God. I'm in a different environment than I grew up in, trust me. But he doesn't love her anymore like he did. She certainly doesn't love him like she did when they got married. They quit working anything out, quit talking, just quit talking. 
quit resigning yourself to say, well, this is what I said I would do. I'm going to do it. You could. But when you don't, when you lose your faith in trusting God for these results, and you withdraw your faith that comes from that verse, and you no longer trust God that way, the devil comes in like a flood. And while nobody talks about you all not getting along, nobody talks about an ideal testimony that you have with each other. What a lovely couple. Nobody says that. Just learn to get along. So do you live with these things or do you fight? Let me ask you all a question. Is there any marital problem in existence that God cannot cause a person to overcome? Oh, we're so quiet tonight. Okay, then why isn't it overcome? Then what is the problem? Well, the problem is we don't fight. I said it three sermons now. We don't fight. We're convinced we can't do anything about it. We're convinced it's gone on too long. Or, I don't want to. Think I'll trade this one in and get me a new model. How about your children? How about your children in a marriage? He won't discipline the children. She won't either. Is that biblical? Kids sass the daddy. Kids sass the mom. I do not understand how it gets to this, but it does. And that's not right. That is unrighteousness. Are y'all hearing me? That is unrightness. That's wrongness. I can stand up here and teach until I literally turn blue in the face. And there are people who will hear that and won't do it. Why? Because the devil has talked you out of doing it. You can't. It's too late. Too far, too hot, too cold, too young, too old, too something. Give in. You just cave in. Let it go. We let our children grow up loud and unruly. See, if I say too much tonight, I'll, somebody will surely think, well, he's after so-and-so. No, I'm not after anybody. I've been in places where there is anything but peace and quiet in a home. People are mouthy and loud and sassy and talk back, and they're out of control. Ask any school teacher how many unruly, loud, and mouthy, bratty kids are in a classroom. They were raised like that. Some of them came out of so-called Christian homes. The parents were armed with a word that said, this is the way walking in it, and they said, we will not do this. You remember what God said about children? My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. He said, because you have rejected my word, he said, I will also forget your children. And you've got a generation, right as I'm standing here tonight, a generation of kids who don't know how to love, who don't know how to like. They're full of hate and bitterness. They don't know what no means, and they can't stand not to have their own way. And it's the most unhappy generation that has ever lived on the face of this earth. Now, how do you know that? Well, that's my statement. Everybody's got an opinion. That is my unhappy. Unhappy. Just miserable. I mean, they try drugs, and they die when they're in their 20s, and, and then they try the sex thing, and that just, they do all that. Then when they get married, there's nothing new, and then nothing's good, and it's just a destitution. They just had to do all this junk when they were young and growing up. Somebody didn't restrain them. They weren't stopped. You know what he said, where there is no vision? Remember that in Proverbs 29? Where there is no living revelation of God, the people cast off restraint. They don't forbid themselves anything. The fruit of it, look at the clothes that a lot of kids wear today. I'm talking about famous people. Everybody looks shabby. That's just your opinion. It's a good one, too. They look shabby and dirty. They're selling clothes today that look dirty. Blue jeans that people pay a whole lot more 
than they should pay look washed and worn out when you buy them with holes in them. What's wrong? People have this look of, they're just mad. They're not happy because they all had parents. So I'll tell you what happened. In the 1960s, my generation was the last one that I can remember that didn't have all the drug use that we see today. I was teaching school in the 1960s in my 20s. And I remember when the monkeys and then the Beatles and all of this hippie, remember the hippies came out with this dumb look and the men looked like women, except for the beard. <laughs> and they began to act real strange. Anything that would distance themselves from a normal society. They wanted to look different. They wanted to talk different. They wanted to act different. They broke all the rules and believed in free love. They rode around in Volkswagens, and this is the entrance of new strains of venereal disease. They burned down campuses. They protested. They hollered against the police. I would have never done that when I was a kid because we would have been shot. Well, they did shoot some at Kent State, at Kent University, that protested. That's the way it was when I grew up. You didn't do that. And all of a sudden, the people that burnt our campuses down in the 60s are now our senators and our congressmen and grandfathers and leaders. And a whole generation has been corrupted. And that corruption has creeped over into the church because the church wants so badly to please the world and be like the world so the world won't come down on them. We quit fighting. We just try to be cool. We let our kids have whatever they want because we want our kids to be like other kids. We don't want our kids to be freaks of nature, so we don't want them to be persecuted by, by the worldly kids, so we let our kids be with them. I saw one segment of this Duggars. I'm not into that stuff much, but I watched one time, there was a whole bunch of them, a school bus full of kids in this family. Were they 20, almost, 19? And I heard one thing, I didn't forget this. One of the reporters asked the father and the mom interviewing them, we see that none of your kids are involved in organized sports. Is there some problem that you have with that? You know what their answer was? They said, well, if our kids were involved in organized sports, we would be divided up every night somewhere. We never would get to spend time with each other and go all the places that we go, do all the things that we do as a unit. We never would bond because we'd all be here, there, there's one over there, there's one over here. She's got a car load here. They're in soccer, football, baseball. They're gone all the time. We never get together. All hours of the day they come in, no time to eat together. So they decided they would eliminate all of that in their life so they could do what they do as a family. Have you ever heard of such a thing in America? Can you imagine a family getting together and liking each other? Can you imagine where dad doesn't allow youngsters to fight? Where they actually have to clean up their rooms? God forbid. Or they have to shine their shoes. Do they still do that today? Well, I do. Or they have to mow the grass. Buy somebody to do it. No, Junior, you do it. Or Junius, you're big enough, Junius, you get out there and help them mow the grass. How about chores? How about raking leaves, picking up sticks, helping mom clean out the this and go with dad and do this here? And how about changing the oil on dad's car every now and doing this? What about chores? You will have this assignment every day. You think that's good for kids? It cuts into all their volleyball time. It cuts into their being cool time and hanging out time. What are we going to be on the internet if we're out here cleaning a room? How am I going to ratty tat on them? How am I going to do all of that if I'm out here working? <coughs> Can you imagine Dad coming in one day to some of you that are holed up in the house all day long and waxing bold one day? <clears throat> okay. He comes in your room and unplugs that thing. Hey, man, what are you Hey, hey, hey. And you said, hey, straw's cheaper and grass is free. Be still. And so you, you pick up his little thing and you take it out in the yard. And you get that big concrete block you found. What are you going to do? Say, you're going to get some vitamin D. Sunshine. You're going outside and you're going to do something because you're not going to live in this house all day long. 
You've got responsibility. You know what happens? The children have to do that. They grow up knowing that there's more to life than just themselves. And they get married. They have an easier time adjusting to routines and giving in a little bit to other people because they've been taught and trained by their mom and dad at home that you should do that. But we don't let that happen. We want our kids to be normal, and they're not normal. We want our kids to be like other kids. No, you don't. You really don't. Again, I can't say all the things I like to say, but let me wind up by saying this tonight. Any area of our lives that is not under his control, whatever Jesus is not in control of, that we yield to him too, is an area where faith is absent and where Jesus is not glorified. I promise you this, all you young folks that clamor, all you older folks that clamor and you complain and you're bitter and you're griping all the time about something, I promise you, you did not learn that from Jesus and it does not glorify him. My question is, why do you do it? Why? I don't know, I just, sometimes I get ticked off so easy. Well, I think a lot of us do, but you don't have to yield to that. Have you ever heard of forgiveness? How many of you have ever heard of forgiveness? Forgiveness does a wonderful work in a person's heart of humility. Jesus hung on a cross. He said, Father, deal with them. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Now, a wise mother and a wise father adjusting to each other first, making one real good parent that's in agreement with each other, presents to their children a testimony of love and purpose that we are going to raise you and you're going to do what we say. And when you get old enough, we're going to present you to the Lord and he's going to save you. And when a young man or a young woman comes into your life, they're not going to get a whining little beggar. They're going to get somebody that has learned to adapt and adjust to authority and to righteousness. And it would be nice when a father hands his daughter in marriage to know that the young man who marries her is getting himself a jewel and not have to wake up one day and go, man, what have I married? Look at this place. You married her. Honey, what are we having for supper tonight? Well, I know Pizza Hut sounds real good tonight. We went to Pizza Hut last night. <laughs> Wasn't it good? <laughs> Can you sit down and say, I mean, you need to talk right now. I'm not going to Pizza Hut every night. And you're going to fix dinner. <laughs> you all think I'm kidding, don't you? I'm serious as I can be about that. You are going to fix dinner. And I know your mother didn't. Your mother didn't have to, but you do. Because I'm hungry. And I don't want to go out and buy that stuff. You never know what you're going to get anyway. And you're going to fix dinner. You may not have time to do it right, right now, but when I come home tomorrow night, we will have dinner right here at this house. Huh? All right. You don't love me. I love you a whole lot. If I didn't love you, I wouldn't care what you do. I wouldn't care how you felt. I'd just respond to the way you act, and I'd be mad at you, and you'd be upset with me. I wouldn't care what you thought, because I don't care about you. But if I love you, I don't want this to be in my marriage. I don't want it to be like this. That's why you tell that child when he grows up, can I go away? I'm going to go. No. Why? Because in my best judgment, that's not a good thing for you to do now. Why not? Because I don't think it's the right thing you do. Why not? Because I said so. Now, don't ask me no more. Or you're grounded till you're 63 years old. <laughs> you have to go to my grave when you're an old man. Ask your grandpa there if, he can, if you can do this or that. I used to tell my kids that too. I'm going to ground you to your 40 if you don't straighten up. Now, in closing tonight. What can we do about this? I know it's individual. But let's say we notice in some more than others. What can we do about it? I want you to turn to two places. Isaiah 59 first and Ezekiel 22. Just those two places so you can flop back and forth. Ezekiel 22, Isaiah 59. In Isaiah chapter 59 first and verse 9. Therefore is judgment far from us, neither does justice overtake us. 
Now this, to me, is how I can see the kind of bondage, listen to me, that Christians are in. This is what brings the sadness and the gloom of the doom, because a lot of people are trapped just like these folks are. Judgment or justice or fairness is far from us, neither does justice overtake us. We wait for light, but behold, darkness for brightness, but we walk in darkness. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope as if we had no eyes. We tremble at noonday as in the night. We're in desolate places as dead men. I'm not getting anything out of the Lord's work. I'm not able to enjoy any of this. I just feel like I'm wasting my time being here. Nothing's working in my life. Everything's going downhill. Verse 11, we roar all like bears and mourn sore like doves. We look for justice, but there is none for salvation, but it's far from us. You see, our transgressions are multiplied before you, O God, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and as for our iniquities, we know them. We know what they are. Here's what God said in verse 16. And he saw that there was in Shelbyville Christian Assembly, he wondered that there was no man. Saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. That's what we can do is pray. We can pray. We can pray. Verse 19 Second part, when the enemy shall come in like a flood, God cares, doesn't he? When the enemy comes in, it's God who raises up a standard against him. And the Redeemer shall come to Zion, he'll come to us, and unto them that turn from transgressions, that begin to try and overcome. Ezekiel 22, verse 30. Boy, this whole chapter is just a picture of ugliness. People are just absolutely vulgar and ugly. But God said, I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land, for Shelbyville Christian Assembly, that I should not destroy it, but I found none. It's like that psalmist said, no man cared for my soul. I would to God that everybody here would be concerned about somebody. You don't have to tell them. You'd be concerned about somebody and you pray for them. You don't try to find out what's going on, what's the latest about somebody, but you just pray. It's like, Father, in the name of Jesus, I know that if I was in this situation, I would want somebody to pray for me and I really want you to change this thing around and turn it around and affect the hearts and lives of these people so that their eyes are open and they see what's going on and then fight. Do something about it and quit giving in to it. Fight. Because God said, I looked and I wondered, where's anybody that cares? Does anybody care? Does anybody really care? Who? God said, I'm going to have to judge all of this. So he said, I look for a man, anybody who would stand before me on behalf of somebody else so that they would be spared. And he said, I couldn't find anybody. We're all busy. My question is why? We've been here for 28 years. I've seen declines. I've seen some progress. I just wonder sometimes why the people who used to fight who know how to fight, probably, even though they're not fighting their condition, they're probably not praying for anybody else either. Maybe they're giving up. Maybe the devil has mastered them finally. All I'm saying to you is, why don't you take that sword in your hand tonight before you go out of here? Why don't you ask God to make it shine in your heart first to show you what you need to do about your own life first? and how to deal with your life and to overcome these things in my family, in my marriage, and in my children, or in my life, or in the church, and help me to get a grip on what is right and stand on the gap for somebody. Amen. Bow your heads. Heavenly Father, as you look upon us and you see what you see, 
surely we must appear as weaklings and just weak and beggarly little somethings down here. But we know in Jesus' name that we're to be triumphant in Christ, that he leads us to victory. I pray that we're following him, Lord. I pray that when you look at us, you can see fruit that's being born. I pray that we will get a hold of this so you won't have to judge us. Make us to overcome, O oh Lord, to pull down strongholds in our lives and to quit worrying about things, about what people think or about tomorrow and live as though this is the last day of our lives. I'm going to enjoy it. Lord, these people before whom I stand are your people. They're not mine. They're yours. They have needs, some much more than others. Some are hanging on, some are standing tall. I pray that your word as it goes forth out of here will affect for good everybody in here, that in no time will this word return void, but that it will prosper in the thing whereto you have sent it. We have spoken it tonight, cause it to bear fruit, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.